I'm Carl Quintanilla. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Friday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Ford and Deirdre Bosa. What an hour we have ahead. The CEOs of Intel, Snap, and Roku all join us in the next 60 minutes. Plus, Apple's red again, warning of this $8 billion blindside due to supply constraints. Amazon, $4 billion loss. Bleak guidance and the slowest growth since the dot-com bubble burst. That stock's down double digits. It's on pace for its worst day in over a decade. Now down nearly 30% since Andy Jassy took the reins about a year ago. Rising costs, a big part of the pain for Amazon. The company says inflation, overinvestment in warehouses, extra staffing cost them $6 billion in Q1. Jassy says we're no longer chasing physical or staffing capacity. Our teams are squarely focused on improving productivity and cost efficiencies throughout our fulfillment network. He added this may take some time. John, we're going to watch this closely. A lot of chatter today about whether or not Q4 will be the first profitable retail quarter and whether or not layoffs are the next chapter. Well, this is particularly fascinating, Carl and Dee, given this is kind of Andy Jassy's first big uh, retail e-commerce decision moment, I'll say, because as Amazon discussed on the call, the capacity build-outs in logistics that were in place a year ago that, that turned out to be too much, those were a long time coming. Those have been put in place before Jassy himself took the CEO role. Uh, and now he's got to adjust with now the backdrop, D, of Amazon saying that they want to be the best employer on the planet and this union drive ramping up. So somehow they've got to pursue efficiency while not feeding into the narrative that's fueling the union drive, because if they do that, they'll reduce their longer-term flexibility with the workforce. This is quite a pickle. (laughs) Quite a pickle, quite a challenge. Um, But if you think that Amazon is going to be best positioned, if we hit another demand shock, I mean, you could make that argument that that excess capacity will serve them well. And that's what they basically said is that, listen, they've got Prime Day coming up in Q3. Q4 is their big holiday quarter. So they wanted this extra capacity. At the same time, though, it's costing them $2 billion a quarter. Um, What does this mean for the rest of the space, though? John, Shopify. I'm looking at Shopify. They are building out their logistics capacity. If Amazon has too much space... Where does that leave their plans to invest a billion dollars in a fulfillment center? Comes back to this kind of core question. Is this an issue of demand? Amazon says no, but this could mean a lot more for a Shopify or others in the logistics space. Because as we know, Carl, Amazon has all of these other high margin businesses that some investors will say, okay, this is an opportunity to buy because they have AWS and advertising and that prime subscription revenue. Yeah, uh, the advertising, of course, comes with the caveat that it decelerated to 25 percent from prior 33. But Dee's absolutely right, John. Uh, it's almost we, in this Jekyll and Hyde nature of the of the company now, given the strength in AWS, which continues to put numbers uh, together in the high 30s, let's say. Yeah, I'm not sure Amazon wants to sell that excess physical capacity to Shopify, but there's a buyer out there, I guess. But the, the more interesting competitor to watch in this situation, I think, is Walmart, because Walmart not necessarily getting the same kind of whiplash here and tends to benefit in inflationary environments in its physical stores Mm -hmm. when, uh, you know, working class Americans who are watching their pocketbooks are looking for a bargain. So how does Walmart invest uh, in in the e-commerce and potentially higher end logistics uh, area as Amazon is making these adjustments? That's going to be something for investors to pay attention to.
Yeah. Meantime, guys, Apple's the other one worth watching. Shares down as the company warns about supply chain issues that could result in an $8 billion hit to revenue. They add that COVID lockdowns in China hurting some business. Services driving the growth there, of course. Revenue for the division at an all-time high. Board authorizes an increase to the buyback of $90 billion. A lot of the estimates were more in the $70 billion uh, uh, dollar range. Uh, D, um, you know, Jim this morning suggests maybe if you do get a pivot in, uh, in lockdown policy in China, China, some of this might be alleviated over time. And as it is, some argue Apple is the last man mm -hmm. standing in Fang. Yeah. Uh, speaking of the last man standing, right, we see this decline of about 1%. Is that good enough? But as a whole, guys, I mean, the market was so focused on these mega cap tech earnings. What did it tell us? The fundamentals are largely intact. In fact, they may even be better at meta. Um, so you haven't seen sort of this huge re-rating for these companies yet. The Nasdaq, John, is down more than one and a half percent again today. It's on pace for an 11 percent loss this month. That does not bode well, especially when these mega caps are basically still doing OK. Yes, there's caution on the horizon. But does anyone think that they're going to give up their leadership? I don't think so. It's phenomenal that Apple is only down you know, less than 2%. When you, figure, when you think about how well this stock has held up over the past several months, like this stock is up year to date, much less two years, right? So you compare that against any of the Fang names. Remember, Fang was originally Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google. All four of those uh, are, are pretty much down, I think, uh, over one year, maybe Alphabet is up slightly. But but Apple and Microsoft in an entirely different category, that's something that we are learning yeah. this time. But I, I think part of what has investors somewhat concerned is you got a hard number on that $4 billion to $8 billion uh, impact of supply constraints in the current quarter, but you don't really have solid numbers on guidance. So, you know, the, the only thing there is to hold on to, Carl, is, is not something you necessarily want to hold too close. Yeah, of course, uh, again, Jim, this morning referenced the enormous cash position uh, D and the line that kind of got buried yeah. last night. And that is <laughs> don't completely discount the idea that we could use some of that cash uh, for acquisitions, even if they're bolt on. That's a great point. And I mean, that's kind of what separates Amazon here as well. I mean, predicting an operating loss of what could be a billion dollars or a profit of $3 billion. But that's key here. Amazon has never had a capital return program. So if you're holding out for buybacks or dividends, that's not going to happen. I mean, even with Alphabet, John, uh, some folks wanted a bigger buyback or more of a dividend. And Ruth Porat says that's not going to happen. They're going to continue to invest. But that's also what's separating these so-called FANG, prefer to call them mega cap names, are those capital return programs, which is worth noting, that big uh, dividend and buyback from Apple. Indeed. The FANG over time, it got kind of uh, squishy, right? Jim, I think, originally was talking about the growth potential in a certain group of stocks, not necessarily mega caps, and maybe that's why Apple and Microsoft got left out. But anyway, speaking of big companies, Intel falling this morning after issuing lower than expected guidance for the current quarter. That's despite beats on the top and bottom lines for their Q1. CEO Pat Gelsinger warning investors on the earnings call. Semiconductor industry will see capacity uh, issues until at least next year. Uh, Pat Gelsinger joins us now in a first on CNBC interview. Uh, Pat, good morning. Um, I, I want to start off with the big picture again, technically beat on Q1, miss on the Q2 guide, but you're confident in your full year guide still. Why? A lot of this has to do with the data center performance 
and continued buying from the hyperscalers. We're just talking about Microsoft. They're continuing to buy, right? Yeah, overall, John, we'd say, you know, we're very firm in the year. We have, you know, strength in our network and edge business, which we highlighted yesterday. Strong, strong performance in Q1. You know, continued growth in our data center business this year. And we had a very strong uh, growth, 22% year on year. And as we look to our new growth businesses, our foundry business, our accelerated computing and graphics uh, business, the expansion that we have with our mobile eye, you know, business, all of these growth businesses as well. You know, we did point out that uh, PC is uh, some inventory corrections, some weakness in the low end of the consumer market. But we also see the second half and we have more visibility here, the supply chain inventory adjustments, you know, the distribution channels. We just have more visibility into that. And we see a strong second half in the commercial business particularly. So overall, we feel very good about the year. And obviously, Q2 is a bit tempered because of these inventory adjustments. Also, some of the challenges in Shanghai and the port shutdowns. But we think it's a very solid guide for Q2. And we're very confident in the rest of the year. And overall, you know, semiconductors continues to be a great business that we see substantial long-term strength in the business. Pat, I wonder, and I haven't seen this uh, thoroughly addressed, about whether there might be creep in the PC business weakness. It's at the low end now, but there's been so much strength in, in the premium end and in graphics. But historically, a lot of that's kind of more discretionary PC buying. Um, is it possible, have you factored in the possibility, that if inflation continues to run hot, even that high-end business could see more pressure? You know, we're pretty confident in the second half of the year. And part of that, uh, uh, John, is driven by the commercial segment. And uh, the commercial, you know, we're way overdue on a commercial refresh. And uh, this is major corporate buying, you know, and those are very uh, stable outlooks from the large uh, customers. We also have a very strong product line. Our Alder Lake product has ramped extremely well you know, well ahead of our uh, uh, expectations in Q1. Outlook for it is very strong. We have our next generation product, Raptor Lake, already being broadly uh, uh, sampled into the marketplace. So we're really coming into a period of product strength as well as into commercial strength. And as I said, most customers have, you know, brought down their inventories levels. We'll see a little bit more of that uh, in Q2, but we're confident in this outlook. And overall, you know, as we've seen in the COVID world, you know, the PC is the essential device for work, learn, and play, and there's nothing changing that uh, characteristic. And literally everybody has aligned around this 350 million unit kind of outlook, all of the analysts, all of the OEMs. So I think there's a narrowing of the range of that uh, market expectation now. Well, let's zoom out and, and check in on the strategy, specifically when it comes to design and, and process technology. You said on the call that you remain on and in some places ahead of schedule to deliver five nodes in four years which is way accelerated from what Intel uh, has typically done. Where does, though, that uh, roadmap fit in with the constraints that we see on uh, fab equipment uh, and, and, and you know, the, the continuing logistical difficulties that we talk about? Are you as confident that you will have the equipment to deliver uh, the, the results of those um, five process nodes in four years? Yeah, thanks, John. You know, five nodes, four years. First was Intel 7 with our Alder Lake product. That one's done. You know, ramping in volume, 15 million units in Q1, very robust and a strong ramp for the year. 
Intel 4. We've now powered on our Meteor Lake product and uh, looking very good. Uh, I keep getting hello worlds coming from uh, Meteor Lake systems all across the company. They just want the CEO to know. And we have our first test chips on Intel 3 and our Granite Rapids uh, products. You know, we have uh, just taped that in. Uh, so we're well underway there. And 20A and 18A, we'll have the first uh, test uh, units on that and some of the foundry customers in the second half. So overall, five nodes, four years, back to unquestioned process leadership, going super well. I'm really proud of our teams. You know, I also had that unique opportunity as we opened our new research center module in uh, Oregon. We renamed the site the Gordon Moore Research Center, and just in honor of the founder and Moore's Law, just a pretty special moment. But the other half of that that you ask about is the equipment industry. And that's part of the reason that we believe the overall semiconductor shortage will now drift into 2024 uh, from our earlier estimates on 2023, just because the shortages have now hit equipment and some of those factory ramps will be more challenged. Now, overall, you know, we feel we're with our IDM 2.0 strategy, internal and external foundry capacity. We're better off than others. We've really invested in those equipment relationships, but that will be tempering the build out of capacity for us and everybody else. But we believe we're positioned better than the rest of the industry and we're overall on track. Five nodes, four years, big capacity build outs are well underway. Our construction projects ahead of schedule. So overall, this machine is executing well and I'm quite proud of our teams. Ambitious plans. Uh, good morning, Pat. It's Deirdre, by the way. Um, reading Intel's financials has become more difficult, I found, since you've taken over. You pulled out stock comp, resegmented businesses. Later this year, some people say that the understanding of Intel's fundamentals could get even murkier as you guys spin out Mobileye. So I wonder, how should our audience judge the underlying business and how are you increasing transparency? Something that you promised when you took over. Yeah, and this is the first quarter, and I realize there's going to be some amount of digestion, but this is the first quarter that we've presented our financials against the six business units. And the reason we did that is they align with the markets. They also align with exactly how I am running the business. And we have six general managers that are held accountable for their businesses. So in this way, I think the transparency has increased, six business units, the alignment with our business, with how we're presenting those to the market increases. And we're trying to give investors all of you know, the old to the new reconciliations that they require to see how the business looks. You know, we've also, I think, laid out very clear five-year plans and given the street plenty of points along the way that they can measure us against. And you know, as we saw in Q1, we hit all of those uh, metrics, new product metrics, you know, the financial uh, metrics, the capital cash flow metrics. We're giving them much more transparency. And for that, because as I say, we want to be a say-do culture. What we say, the street can count on, and we want to be consistently a meat, beat, raise kind of company that is back to that execution engine that people came to know, love, and have confidence in Intel. And we are well underway in making that happen, Deidre. And Pat, we appreciate you saying it on Tech Check as you work to go out and do it. Pat Gelsing is CEO of Intel. Thanks for being with us. Meantime, Snap making a number of new announcements at its annual Partner Summit event yesterday, just a week after the company reported that challenging Q1. Our Julia Borston joins us now with a very special guest. Hi, Julia. Hi, Carl. That's right. We are joined now by Evan Spiegel, the CEO and founder of Snap. Thanks so much for talking to us today. Hey, Julia. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. 
So, Evan, we have so much ground to cover. Augmented reality ads, the new hardware they introduced yesterday at your partner summit. But I want to start with the very foundational issue of user growth. You just reported much faster than expected, 20% monthly active user growth to 600 million. Your daily active users have consistently been growing faster than expected. My question to you is, can you keep up this rate of growth? Well, we certainly have a huge opportunity globally. There are still billions and billions of people who don't yet use Snapchat to communicate with their close friends and family. And so we're very focused on that opportunity. We've been making lots of investments to improve our application, make it easier to use on a wider range of devices, to partner with telcos to make our service more affordable. So there's plenty of opportunity around the world, and and we're really excited to stay focused on our community's growth. And what about competition with TikTok? What kind of impact are you seeing from TikTok? Or are there other services that are more focused on messaging that are having a bigger competitive impact? Well, the the video entertainment business uh, is certainly a huge opportunity, but it's also very competitive. So whether it's TikTok or Instagram or, or YouTube, there's many folks who are investing a lot in this space. We have our own competitive product called Spotlight, which we shared grew uh, time spent 230% year over year last quarter. So we're making steady progress there. But as you pointed out, the engagement on Snapchat is really diversified. So people are using Snapchat to communicate with their friends and family, to use our AR platform with all sorts of amazing lenses, to see where their friends are at on the map and discover new places, to save me- save and edit their memories. So people are, are using Snapchat in all sorts of different ways, which helps us with our competitive uh, positioning because we play such different roles in, in people's lives. We're not just uh, a, a single service. Evan, shifting gears over to your revenue outlook, you outlined how revenue growth is slowing dramatically in the wake of the war in Ukraine and all these inflationary pressures. But I want to ask you about a different revenue pressure, and that is Apple's operating systems changes. You've talked in the past about how challenging it has been to work around them. But have you fully addressed that issue? And when, if not now, will you fully have found workarounds to that Apple iOS issue? Yeah, we've been making steady progress there. I believe we shared in the lead up to the invasion, our DR revenue was our direct response revenue was growing uh, about 50% year over year. And you know, the, the full quarter year over year growth rate was actually higher than our overall revenue growth rate, which grew about 30%. Uh, year over year. So we've been making very steady progress there. I think uh, we also shared on the earnings call that you know, advertisers representing about 90% of our revenue have now implemented our first party solutions uh, that allow them to measure and optimize their advertising campaigns. So, you know, it's going to be an ongoing journey, uh, you know, and, and we expect more platform policy changes, of course, from, from Google uh, as well. So we're, we're just focused on serving our advertisers, making sure that they uh, can achieve great uh, ROI on, on their advertising campaigns. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an, uh, an ongoing journey. It was before the platform policy changes, and it'll continue to be because we always want to be improving uh, the return on investment for our advertising partners. Yeah, and we certainly expect some more of those privacy-focused changes ahead. But returning to those macroeconomic factors, you know, whether it's inflation or supply chain constraints putting pressure on advertisers, what's your outlook for how long those pressures, as you see them now, will impact the business? And is there anything that you're doing to help brands work around them or make Snap more appealing considering those constraints? Well, I certainly wish I was uh, an economist. So it's too hard to say. The the macro environment is obviously very complex right now. I think when you have 
a nuclear power going to war, it just creates a lot of uncertainty. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I, I wish I was uh, able to predict the future, but I, I don't think that's uh, possible at this point. So we've just stayed focused on helping our advertisers meet their business goals, whether that's with our video advertising and performance products or with augmented reality, which has been a huge focus of ours. We've seen how augmented reality try-on, for example, can drive much higher conversions for advertisers. And so we've been working to scale that out, including with some announcements uh, yesterday at our Snap Partner Summit. We've found that brands often say, gosh, you know, I, I want to engage with augmented reality, but I don't have a whole catalog of 3D assets. How can I get involved with my 2D product catalog? So we released a product that allows advertisers to bring their 2D product catalog into augmented reality and enable product try-on with those 2D images so that users can try on thousands of different looks or, or outfits without ever changing their clothes. And of course, that helps with exploration and consideration, but also higher conversion. And that's something we're really excited about. Hey, Evan, good morning. It's Deirdre. Um, I got to ask, what do you make of what's going on over at Twitter? Do you see Elon Musk's takeover as perhaps an opportunity for Snap to gain advertisers or users or even engineers amid so much uncertainty? Or do you think that he could ultimately change the whole landscape that could make it more difficult or just different for you to compete? It's hard to say because the platforms are so different. You know, Twitter is this public square and Snapchat's about communicating visually with your close friends and family. So, uh, you know, I, I don't think there's a lot of overlap. I think the strategies are going to continue to be very different. But who knows? You know, Elon is so passionate about the Twitter product, and I'm excited to see uh, what they come up with over there. Guys are announcing this Pixie drone for $230. Uh, in a way, this seems a lot more practical to me even than spectacles. Uh, what's the role of this kind of hardware in your strategy? I mean, it doesn't seem like you're looking to do mass market Apple or even Sonos numbers with these things. Should we think of this even in terms of how Roku is using hardware or is it more inspirational? Well, as a camera company, we're always experimenting with evolving what the camera can be. And what we learned with Spectacles when we first released them is that people love capturing hands-free video because they can explore the world without having to hold their camera in front of their face. So we started experimenting with free-flying cameras because they give you a totally new perspective. They situate you in your world with your friends and they allow you to create a totally new type of content. So it's still an early experiment, but it's a really fun product. And, and I think people are really going to enjoy playing with Pixie. But what can we tell from this product or learn from this product in terms of what your strategy is going to be for hardware going forward? Will there be many more devices that you're launching? And do you see some of them as being mass marketplace? Potentially mass market plays over time, but the important thing with our strategy is just to extend the software experience that we have in Snapchat with hardware. That, that's the case, of course, with spectacles. We found that using augmented reality on this tiny little screen where you have to use your thumbs just isn't as compelling as overlaying augmented reality in the world around you, being able to walk around and use your hands and your voice to interact with all sorts of new experiences. So spectacles are a way for us to extend the engagement we see with augmented reality on Snapchat today, where over 250 million people are engaging with AR daily just in Snapchat alone. That doesn't include uh, our camera kit partners who have taken our augmented reality tools and embedded them in their own applications and services. So hardware for us is really a way to extend the core of our business and to see how we can you know, unlock new engagement in the future. Now, at your, your uh, event yesterday, you unveiled all sorts of new augmented reality tools 
for advertisers specifically focused on e-commerce. And you also had some pretty impressive numbers about how many people are already using lenses to try on clothes. Draw the connection between us, between those lenses and advertising on the platform. Are you seeing that kind of technology actually increase ad spending? Yeah, this has been really exciting for us. What we saw very early on, you know, we, we've been working on AR inside of Snapchat for seven or eight years now, I think. And, and what we found is that people were using augmented reality to express themselves, right? Whether they were vomiting a rainbow or trying on a pair of virtual glasses. And so as we partnered with brands, we found that bringing their products, you know, whether those are accessories or clothing or, you know, a new pair of sunglasses into augmented reality allows people to express themselves with that product, but also see how it looks on them. And when they can see uh, that something's a, a good fit or complements their style, they can easily you know, convert in, in one tap from that AR experience. So what we've seen brands do is build these AR lenses that allow people to try on their products, add them to their brand profiles so they're easy for people to find and experiment with. And then they're buying distribution for those lenses in our uh, carousel, our lens carousel, which is in our camera. And Snapchat, as you know, opens into the camera. So it's a really big advertising opportunity for us because our advertisers are front and center in the Snapchat lens carousel, allowing people to try on and, and play with their products. Yeah, so Evan, you are making this big bet on augmented reality and you had recent comments about the metaverse, which you said was pretty ambiguous and hypothetical. What makes you so sure about AR? I mean, you could make the same argument for the internet in the early days, hypothetical and ambiguous. Why not hedge? Why solely focus on AR? Well, I think what's so exciting about augmented reality is, as I mentioned, 250 million people are already engaging with AR on a daily basis in Snapchat. There are hundreds of thousands of developers. There are more than two and a half million lenses that developers have created on Snapchat. So it isn't hypothetical. It's real today. And our community is really getting a ton of value from our augmented reality experiences. So we're really doubling down on that momentum and continuing to expand our service. And, you know, what really I, I was uh, referring to, te technology is complicated enough, so we don't like to use fancy words at Snapchat. We just like to speak directly with our community about the products that we're creating. Uh, well, Evan, I'm sure you use fancy words sometimes. But, of course, when we talk about the metaverse, we have to talk about what Mark Zuckerberg is doing at Meta. And, and the fact that they've recently been talking a lot about bringing this metaverse horizon world into this 2D world and trying to make it more accessible without those VR headsets. What do you make of Meta's moves? And do you see it as more of a competitive threat coming into your AR space? Well, I haven't seen anything yet. So, you know, I'll be uh, eagerly awaiting uh, some of their product developments. We'll, we'll see what happens. Well, uh, we look forward to hearing more from you uh, and getting the latest and also trying out that very cool flying camera ourselves. Thanks so much for joining us, Evan Spiegel, on the heels of all of those announcements yesterday and your earnings last week. Thanks so much, Julia. Take care. Yeah, Julia, thanks. And still to come this hour, the CEO of Roku, Anthony Wood, plus Chinese tech surging still. What's behind that move? We'll look into it next. As always, hey, there's a lot more tech check coming up. Stocks are lower. The Nasdaq is down almost 2% right now. A gut check on Chinese tech. Beijing signaling plans to dial back its big tech crackdown. The street likes that. Alibaba, Pinduoduo, they're up double digits to start the morning. Officials there reportedly promising more policy support to fuel economic growth as the country battles an ongoing COVID outbreak. 
take a look at the KWEB. It is absolutely surging this morning, though come off its greater gains earlier. It is on track, though, to break a three-week losing streak. The sector, though, as we well know, John, has been beaten down over the last year, more than a year now. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Speaking of uh, time, Amazon's having its worst day in more than a decade. So we thought we'd take a look at the stock from a valuation perspective. And Dom Chu has that for us. Hey, Dom. All right. So, John, let's look at that valuation story from a couple of different perspectives. We'll look at it from a dollar perspective and we'll look at it from a multiple perspective. First of all, if you take a look at Amazon shares right now over the last two years, It's still up 7%. That's pretty modest. But what you are, in essence, here at these levels is the same price that you were at for Amazon stock going all the way back to the middle of June in 2020. So just as we were kind of coming out of the lows of the virus pandemic and the market lows in 2020, that's now where Amazon is, given this nice, well, 12% move to the downside so far. If you take a look at the overall picture, at the highs that we saw for Amazon, the record highs, we're talking a nearly $1.9 trillion valuation or thereabouts. Today at these levels, you're talking more about a $1.3 trillion valuation. So about $600 million, $600 billion lost during that span. So we'll put that in dollar terms for you in terms of the value of Amazon. If you take now a look at the valuation from a multiple perspective, we're looking at something called forward P.E. That is how much will you pay for an Amazon share today for the amount of money it generates next year? Anticipated. That's what they call the forward P.E. It currently stands right around 69. If you look over the last five years, at one point we were kind of closer to like 165 times forward earnings or estimated earnings from an from an analyst perspective. And now we're at kind of closer to 69. So tilting towards the lower end of that valuation range and a variety of different reasons go into that. Maybe some slowing growth, maybe some cost concerns and whatnot. So that's something to keep an eye on. Now, as for how Amazon has performed versus some of its is there really a peer? We'll try to put it in context with some of the names like Microsoft, which is a big cloud competitor over the last two years. Amazon is up 7%, Microsoft's up 60%. Even Walmart, from a retail slash e-commerce perspective, is up 25% in that two-year span. So an interesting way, John Deirdre, to kind of look at Amazon through the lens of valuations from a different number of different viewpoints. What it comes down to is whether or not there are folks out there who decide that they want to nibble at this point. It's going to be tough to call, given Amazon's growth profile over the last two years, guys. Well, what's especially interesting, Dom, I think, is that Amazon has the strongest cloud business in AWS, and nobody's questioning that through all of these labor costs and logistical issues. So really, it's the e-commerce and logistics businesses that account for this valuation discount, and they're probably giving more of a valuation discount in a way than is apparent in the charts, right? And not just that. You have to look at the reasons why that valuation discount's happening with regard to the e-commerce, the consumer spending side, and of course, the transportation logistics side. It's because those sides are maybe more exposed to some of the cost pressures that could be anticipated over the course of the next couple of years, perhaps. We're talking about labor costs and inflation, the unionization drives that are happening in multiple locations in Amazon's warehouse universe right now, as well as this notion that by building some more of these warehouses during the course 
course of the virus pandemic to meet consumer demand, you now have infrastructure to take care of, and that costs money. So all of these things playing out the way they are, Carl, gives you a real sense of whether or not Amazon is a place that's still considered growth or whether it's going to be a value kind of proposition going forward. And some of those valuation arguments are the reasons why those forward PEs are being scrutinized a little bit more these days, guys. Yeah, there's going to be some case studies done, Dom, on whether or not Amazon, one of the best innovators of scale, uh, even they fell victim to overestimating the pull forward uh, from COVID. We'll find out in the years and quarters to come. Meantime, Roku share is getting a boost this morning on the heels of earnings. That's despite some dim guidance. We're going to hear from CEO Anthony Wood on the other side of this break. Roku reported a loss in Q1 of 22, management blaming macro headwinds like inflation, geopolitics, and the supply chain for the year-over-year decline in profits. Our Julia Borston sat down with CEO Anthony Wood last night in an exclusive interview and joins us now with some highlights. Julia? Well, Carl Roku's Anthony Wood telling me that the company's growth, 1.1 million users added in the first quarter, was moderated by the end of government stimulus payments, while the company's business of selling its software on TVs was particularly hurt by supply chain issues, which aren't going away anytime soon. But the supply chain issues are, it costs more to ship products, it's harder to get parts, that's causing the prices of TVs to go up, that's reducing the number of TVs that are sold overall by the industry. Looking ahead to the second half of the year, the company expects growth to re-accelerate in part because of easier comps with last year and in part because Roku expects more ad-supported streaming options to help shift more ad dollars from traditional pay TV into streaming. Roku telling, I'm sorry, Wood telling me that Disney's ad-supported option and Netflix, the fact that it's working on one, are a good thing for Roku's platform. Advertising generally is a very important part of the uh, streaming ecosystem. It lowers costs, it increases engagement, and increases the number of people that are streaming. And so that's good for us as a platform because it increases the amount of uh, viewing. I asked what if he was concerned that the new joint venture between Comcast, and which is CNBC's parent, of course, and Charter, which was announced earlier this week, they're planning to offer a new streaming platform and devices similar to Roku. I asked him if he's worried it'll take market share. You know, uh, we've been competing with Google, we've been competing with Amazon uh, in multiple markets around the world. And we're the number one, and we've been competing successfully and we've been winning. Our competitors are big companies. Uh, They're very successful companies, but they have other businesses that are more important to them than streaming. And so, you know, they're not as focused on streaming as we are. Another potential threat that's been raised by analysts, the merger of Warner Brothers and Discovery, giving the combined company more negotiating leverage with the platform. But Wood told me that mergers will create streamers that can succeed on his platform. Merging uh, is helping to build more competitive streaming services. And streaming services are not just competing in the U.S. now. They're competing on a global basis. They have to have a lot of scale to compete, to be a platform. Now, Roku shares are up over 8% today, but they are still down 72% in the past 12 months. Analyst Craig Moffitt this morning upgrading Roku from sell to neutral, saying with the stock trading below $100, now the company's forward estimates reflect what he sees as a more appropriate view. 
of what's going to happen later this year. Uh, but take a look at what a roller coaster for that stock. Guys? Yeah, Julia, it's been a lot of pain. You can I can understand why some analysts will be taking uh, giving it a second look, a second look. I guess you know, you combine uh, the Comcast Charter JV, what we heard from Netflix, certainly what we've heard from Roku. It all adds up to wouldn't you argue uh, an overall maturation of the business, right? And even that bit about now superseding legacy TV that we're really in a moment Yes, really in a moment of maturation. I mean, if you think about it, the shift from, you know, this proliferation of sort of endless streaming video on demand services to this idea that if you really want to compete, you also have to have some lower priced ad supported options. I mean, we have to remember that Roku does have its free ad supported Roku channel. And, and the question there is, you know, are they going to have to be holding on to that ad market share, is there enough ad market share to go around um, as more ad dollars shift over from TV, or are they going to be competing more with the likes of a Netflix? And it was something he would not address directly. I tried to get him to go there, but of course there are going to be a couple years before Netflix launches its ad-supported version, though Disney Plus has its coming later this year. Julia, trying to connect some dots, when we think about the, the failure of CNN Plus, we think about this JV between or this partnership between Comcast, our parent and Charter and what Netflix is trying to do with a cheaper ad supported service. It seems like perhaps the, what's strategically valuable in cable and streaming is shifting. It is moving back toward free and ad supported. How does that change who has the most leverage and kind of who has hand going forward? Well, I think that Roku is in sort of a bunch of these different businesses, right? So Roku is a platform, and that is exactly the same thing that this joint venture between Comcast and Charter is trying to do, offer more of a platform. Being a platform is beneficial, and there are a lot of options, and you're not sure which one of them is going to succeed. This push to ad supported also reflects what we're seeing in this macroeconomic environment, where you know that if there are more less expensive or free options, that's going to give more incentive to people to try new things. So I think that we're all pushing towards this new, this new layer of the streaming wars, which is all about giving consumers choice at less of a cost. Julia, thanks for that uh, smart analysis. And we know that Roku is the Kathy Wood favorite. It is moving higher today, but Robinhood, another Wood favorite, headed in the opposite direction. We can't forget Teladoc as well, rebounding just slightly. Um, more on that quarter's coming up, Robinhood that is. And don't miss Kathy Wood herself on the exchange at 1 p.m. Eastern today. We're back in just a moment. Let's bring things back to Apple. Still in the red, but hey, only fractionally in its up more than 20% from 12 months ago. One area of strength in the quarter they just reported is the Mac. Apple's investment in its M1 chip is paying off, and investors could hear more about that. Hey, I bet they will before next quarter because we've got Apple's Worldwide Developer Conference coming up. Steve Kovac joins us now. Spoke to Tim Cook yesterday. Uh, Steve, the Mac story so fascinating, I think, because it's typical Apple vertical integration. And given what we just heard from Intel about difficulty in the consumer, yep. Apple doesn't seem to be having much in consumer PCs. Yeah, that's that's exactly what right, what's happening, John. Mac sales are booming, smashing records quarter after quarter. For Apple's Q2, Mac sales were up nearly 15%, booking over $10 billion in revenue. And let me put that in perspective for you. Back in 2019, Apple booked about $25 billion in Mac revenue for the entire fiscal year. Apple's Tim Cook telling me yesterday this is from the new M1 Pro and M1 Max chips introduced last fall in the Mac. 
adding, quote, the last seven quarters have now been the top seven quarters in the history of the Mac. And there's more to come. We're expecting more Mac announcements in early June at Apple's WWDC event, like you just said. And the company has already teased the new Mac Pro is coming soon, which will complete the transition away from Intel chips. And I should also mention Apple is doing all this amid an overall slowdown in demand for PCs, as just like you said, Intel reported last night, John. Steve, appreciate that. Uh, we'll continue to watch the split between Apple and Intel today. Uh, still to come this morning, Elon Musk selling shares of Tesla as he raises money to buy Twitter. We'll get more on that dynamic in just a moment. Time now for a gut check on Western Digital. City sees opportunity on the heels of WDC's latest earnings, naming the company its top value tech stock. Bullish on valuation, saying it's trading near a uh, 50% discount to its peers. Western Digital's uh, revenue and EPS beating the street for the quarter. Shares are higher this morning by a little better than one and a half percent. Tech Check is back after this. Now here's something that you don't hear every day. Shares of Robinhood are in the green up more than two and a half percent. Despite a rocky first quarter, revenue shrinking 43 percent. Monthly active users also declining. CEO Vlad Tanev saying the quarter was, quote, the story of two competing forces, our accelerating product development, juxtaposed against a difficult macroeconomic climate. The company just announced that it will cut its workforce by 9%. The stock, though, is 88% off its 52-week high. That's nearly 90% off its peak. Now trading around $10. On the bright side, John, it's out of the single digits. It's all around sort of future products. And if its user base, though, is declining, how are they going to take advantage of that young active user base that was made so much of during the IPO? Well, they said they want to move more into working with institutions, perhaps employers, and that stable part of the business. I think the question is, what's their pitch going to be, perhaps with these new products, to pull those employers away from Fidelity and Vanguard and you know the names that have been around. Um, we'll see, less confetti, which they already stopped building in uh, for sure. Now, if you missed part of our interviews with Intel, Snap, Roku today, don't worry, we got a podcast too. You can listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you download podcasts. Tech Check is back in a moment. One more thing, Elon Musk sold roughly $4 billion worth of Tesla on Tuesday and Wednesday as he raises money for his bid to take Twitter private. He tweeted that he's done selling, although apparently that didn't uh, match yesterday's batch when he sold another $4.5 to $5 billion of Tesla, bringing the total to between 8 and $9 billion this week, something we've talked a lot about, the pressure uh, the Twitter financing will put on Tesla shares. Also today, reports that Musk promised layoffs at Twitter when lining up financing for this deal. And Reuters reporting that he has, John, picked a CEO already, but no word on who that person is, according to a source talking to Reuters. Yeah, I just don't want us to gloss over this too quickly, D. The eight or nine billion dollars worth of stock dumped in a week. I don't know when we've ever seen something like that because he wants to buy something else other than Tesla. Well, he's serious, right? I think that there was a lot of skeptics out there that thought maybe he would deter, especially with the sell-off that we have seen in Tesla over the last week or so, Carl. So we'll see what next week brings. It's certainly been an eventful one here. Uh, we got through a lot of the big uh, mega cap tech. And of course, we'll get some travel names next week. Etsy, Marriott, Uber, Dash, and Jobs Friday. Have a good weekend. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. 
You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m.